Thank you so much, Deacon Eric, for leading us in our service. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming to join us. And together as God's people, it's always an honour and a privilege. Thank you, Huyen and the musicians, for leading us from triumphant praise to quiet reflection, which is part of our journey as God's people. Today, as we cover Luke chapter 3 and 4, I want to focus on the theme and topic of introductions, the importance of introductions. Did you read this when our Prime Minister Lee Sen Lung arrived at the G20 summit? As he arrived at the G20 summit, he was shown walking down the red carpet engaging in a friendly exchange with the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. And the coverage of that from the uh, TV station, India Today, the TV station, introduced Prime Minister Lee as the outgoing Prime Minister of Singapore and said that former Deputy Prime Minister Taman Shamugaratnam, who was recently elected Singapore's next president, would become the country's new Prime Minister. <laughs> I watched it, actually, before this was noted. I said, Mona, Mona, he just made a mistake, a very huge mistake. And then they acknowledged the mistake, the TV station India Today. During the live commentary of the G20 Leaders Summit, it was inevitably said on India Today that Prime Minister Lee Sin Lung is the outgoing Prime Minister and will be replaced by Mr. Taman. Regretfully, both the above information are factually incorrect. Some introductions are mistaken. At times, some introductions are unforgettable. So I may have told this story, but uh, in the 1980s, the number one star at the time was an uh, actress called Brooke Shields. And one of my university mates who stayed in the same hostel was truly infatuated with her. You enter his room, you think you've entered the worship of Brooke Shields. Posters everywhere, pictures everywhere, and she was, when she was young, she was stunning. And he heard that he was coming, she was coming to promote her film in Sydney, Australia. And he said to all of his friends, I'm going to meet her. And we all laughed at him. <laughs> You're going to meet her? How are you going to meet her? The number one star of that time. Somehow he got to the PR officer. Somehow he made the time. And somehow he met her at a cafe. And she gave him about an hour of her time. And gave him a handshake and a hug. He came back and told us he will not wash his hands. He will not take a shower. And I think he kept that promise. This is Brooke Shields. This is not Brooke Shoes. <laughs> this is Brooke Shoes. You can see why he was infatuated. And so some introductions are unforgettable. I haven't asked my friend from 40 years ago whether he's forgotten that I don't think so. Some introductions at times are a little bit... Should I turn this off? A bit distracting, right? Okay, can we yeah, turn this off for now? Oh, it's not on. Is it on? Okay, all right. Look here, look here. Not Brooke Shoes. <laughs> Very important. <laughs> And so I may have said this before, and sometimes couples date, and you take a while to introduce them to your parents, and this guy who was dating this girl brought him to see her parents, and from the first time they saw her, they didn't like her. And the reason they didn't like her was she had a mole in the wrong place on her face. And that mole, they said in some Chinese superstitious circles, would bring bad luck and bad fortune to the family. How serious was this mole on her face? They made him break up with her. Some introductions are mistaken. Some introductions are unforgettable. Some introductions are life-changing and tragic. In Luke 3 and 4, 
you are introduced to the most important person in the entire universe and for all time, Jesus. And so let me introduce Jesus to you. Not my words, but the words of Luke, the doctor, who went around investigating the life of Jesus. The words, the miracles, the signs. And what on earth did all this prove of this person, Jesus? And his conclusion is, everything I've carefully investigated and put it together for you, the audience, beginning with Theophilus, perhaps his patron or his sponsor, and down to all of us, even now, as I read this, as I preach this, as I proclaim this, this word about the Lord Jesus, this introduction to the person and work of the Lord Jesus at his baptism and at his temptation is something that will affect your eternal destiny. And so here you meet firstly a controversial prophet in the person of John, we call John the Baptist. And then you have an indispensable genealogy, a family tree. And last but not least, in the temptation of Jesus, we say this is a, a unique temptation to him, a unique temptation that he faces on our behalf, and we'll find out why. Are you ready? And so as we are introduced to the controversial prophet, JTB, we all like acronyms and short form like John the Baptist, right? He's the biggest name. Does he bring the worst news or the best, best news or good news? And you see him embark on the lowest posture and you see him speak. If you come to know the Lord Jesus, you have to pay a price as he paid a price in his life. And so we just read this Bible passage to begin our time. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria, Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilin, and during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. And so just in the first two and a half verses, you're introduced to seven names. And who are these seven names? The first five are the political movers and shakers, all the way from the emperor to the governor and to the tetrarch, which is the, like the mayor of those areas. Then you are introduced to two mover shakers in charge of the religion of that time. And when you put the movers and shakers politically and religiously together, you have the people who control life. So you're firstly introduced to the biggest names of that time, and that's vitally important for us to know. But when you think it's Luke's focus, he introduces his names as he has done in the previous chapter when the first emperor called a census a calculation, a counting of the population across the Roman Empire, and then Joseph and Mary were forced, as Mary was expecting the first child, to go to a totally unfamiliar place. But in that unfamiliar place, because of the census, they were fulfilling God's promise that a king born of David's line will come from <coughs> Bethlehem. In short, the movers and shakers that you read about in the Bible is to locate them factually, historically, which tells you when you gospel people, evangelism demands historicity. Evangelism demands factuality. Evangelism demands accuracy. So from young to old, when your friends challenge you, how can you believe the Bible is made up by men? If you can believe a historical figure from, the Western, from Western civilization, just name them. Philosophers, there is no document more verified 
than the Gospels. There is no document more verified than the Gospels, and for you to find out the details of that, you have to join Pastor Sengkun and all in Just for Newcomers. That's a side advertisement for Just for Newcomers, where you learn the veracity of our faith. And so, the main thing is this. John beats the movers and the shakers. The focus is not on the seven big movers and shakers. The focus is on the Word of God came to John. Who on earth is John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness? And where on earth? It's not happening in Rome. It's not happening in Jerusalem. The biggest thing to happen in human history is not happening in the human capitals of this world neither in the political centre of the world or the religious centre of the world. It happens in the wilderness. And so, what do we learn? John beats the movers and the shakers. It's like the modern equivalent, the old equivalent is, there's Tiberius, there's Pontius Pilate, there's Herod, Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, Herod, and there, then Annas and Caiaphas. And in the middle of all this, like you're playing wordle, right? You know wordle? The big words that come when you talk about a theme. And the most important thing is the Word of God came to John. That stands out. All those are just background people coming to this. It's like today, right? Our modern day, the US Central Bank has just announced they will hold interest rates for now. What does it mean for you and me? You've got to listen to the interest rates. If you take up a mortgage, Kim Jong-un has just built another warship on the way. What does that mean for us? And the Houthis have just killed some American soldiers the Americans are pondering what's the right response to them before they control that seaway that might affect your logistics and your rival and trade and, my, and your livelihood and my livelihood. Trump might become the next president for the life of the whole world, you might be wondering. People have said to me, what do you think, Pastor Chris? I don't know what to think. It just happens. Najib's 12-year jail term has been cut to six years and you ask the average Malaysian, what on earth is going to happen to justice? In the midst of all these big hitters, they occupy the world of space, the Word of God comes to you. Which tells you the most important thing to happen to John, and through John, is him announcing Jesus as the Word of God become flesh. Now take it in terms of application at this point, and I've benefited tremendously from reading this commentary which has been given to our leaders by Dale Ralph Davis. I heard him once, one in the UK, he was preaching at a conference. He's a pastor and theologian at the same time, and so whenever he, he reads the scripture, he says, this is the application, this is how it works out in our life, which means if this is true, then amidst all the movers and shakers, the most important thing for you, right, it's not whether Trump becomes president, it, whether the World Bank announces an interest rate hike, whether something's going, it's the way you do your quiet time. The Word of God, when you encounter the Word of God to you, do you treasure the Word of God? Do you have your family devotions around the Word of God? No matter what disorder and chaos and uncertainty there is in the world, there is the certainty of God's Word. It is the Word of God has come to you now finally in Christ. When you meet in your basic Bible studies every week on a Saturday, when you meet in the discipleship groups, the Word of God has come to you in Christ. The whole world may be in chaos. Your life may be falling to bits. But it's the Word of God that grants you clarity, certainty, security, stability, peace. When you make the effort to come once a week here 
And I just stood there at the door with our manager, Mr. Ho Choi, and said, nine o'clock is filling up. It's really filling up. Praise God. You want to look around? It's really filling up by God's grace. And soon we have to push some of you maybe to 11.30. Is that a good thing? I'm so encouraged when I see this. We've been encouraging some from the 9 a.m. at Bishan because there's overcrowding. I said, there doesn't need to be overcrowding there because we have four other services. One at 11.30 at Bishan, three other services at 5 p.m. at 9 and 11.30. And soon, within six months to eight months, we will be on the move to Tengah. Sorry. <laughs> Cameron's managing to say, yes! <laughs> and then nothing beats the Word of God, nothing beats the forgiveness of sins. So when we gather to hear God's Word, do you find excitement? I was so encouraged, right? Been so encouraged since the year began with so many different things I'll speak about later. Eileen Chin was on the staff training and she was praying and hoping to go to more college to train to become a full-time gospel worker. I've told this story many times. She was the fittest among all our staff. She ate well, she exercised well. She didn't feel well on a Sunday morning. She rang me, said, could I take a break? I said, yeah, by all means, rest at home. Monday morning, she passes away from an aneurysm, a burst blood vessel. Her parents were totally shocked, her parents in Malaysia, when I called them. When we review Eileen's life from the time I knew her in Sydney, when I was working as a campus chaplain together with another, Eileen always had a burden for her parents' salvation. They went to a Methodist church, a very well-known Methodist church in Malaysia, but Eileen never knew whether they were churchgoers or whether they were Christ followers. And her one prayer is that one day they will read God's Word for themselves. And it will show evidence that they love God's Word and come to know Jesus as their Saviour and the Lord, and she'll be happy. How would she know that God would answer her prayer in that way? Because Mrs. Chin especially. Tell me about Eileen's life that I never knew in Sydney. What do you know about her? And she said, we, we, said, we all went to churches run by Philip Jensen, and the Word of God was central, and Jesus was central, and... He, Here's the Bible study material for it. And Mrs. Chin just took the material, took our material, Bible studies, and started Bible studies in KL for women's groups. And year after year, you know what she'll say if you meet her now? It took the life of my daughter for me to be serious about God and His Word. But she says it with thanksgiving to God. She says it with thanksgiving that God has brought her and she's now a conduit of this Word. The Word of God has come to us in Christ. What's your attitude to God's Word? Could 2024 be the turning point of your life that you cannot live without the Word of God? Either first thing in the morning, last thing in the hour, and throughout the day, whenever you have a free moment in school or in, in school or at work, just to read God's Word and meditate and recall God's Word in your life, the Word of God has come to us. The ultimate mover and shaker is God through His Word fulfilled in Jesus. And at the heart of this Word, take a look at that, at the heart of this Word that John the Baptist will pronounce and Jesus will fulfill is, He went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Thank God 
that this Word of God carries the number one thing that all of us need in this hall. And what is it that all of us need, the 650 or 700 of us need in this hall? And whoever is tuning, this, tuning to this online from the rest of the world, whatever you do not need, you need the Word of God. You need forgiveness. Forgiveness is the number one thing we need from God. And so if John the Baptist had to pronounce this to get them ready for the ultimate person who would be able to forgive sins, the Lord Jesus Christ, then we got to realize this, that sin, see, many things in life you can afford, some things you cannot afford. So when you newly get married, say, I can't afford a five-room flat. Right? A five-room flat is a luxury I cannot afford. I cannot afford, though I got a big extended multi-gen family, a terrace house. A terrace house in Singapore is a luxury I cannot afford. No, you know what is it you cannot afford? Sin is a luxury you cannot afford. Any age, at any season, you cannot afford to do sin of thoughts, of words, of deeds and to be scot-free without repercussions in your relationship with God and your relationship with others. And I've coined the phrase, right? What we do with sin is we do HDB. We hide sin, we deny sin, we blame others for sin. So I want to ask you, what specific sin are you still engaging in and embracing and think it's a luxury you can afford? that you can carry on with this sins of thought and word and deed, and there'll be no repercussions. I say again and again in this message, sin is a luxury you cannot afford in your walk with God and with your walk with others. You just can't. Jesus has been sent by God. Announced by John the Baptist, he would do this. And Israel had gotten used to not taking sin seriously in her life. And so, what does this mean? Comes on, it's like. He said, therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who want you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so what does he mean by that? Whatever you do not know from this passage, there are few takeaway lines. And then he goes on with this. And he addresses three parties there, recorded by John, spoken by John the Baptist, to the crowds, to the tax collectors, to the soldiers. Take away lessons from this portion, the first part. The way John the Baptist preached is not the way you want to teach young preachers how to preach. Because how to win friends, right? You begin a sermon by calling people, you snakes, you vipers. It's not a very nice way to begin a sermon. Should I begin next week, now that I have the biblical injunction for this? You brood of vipers. <laughs> begin a Bible study that way. Begin a devotion that way. It's a sure way to turn people on. In the words, it's a very, not a winsome way to begin a message. And not a winsome way, the moment you call them vipers, and then immediately you warn them of God's wrath. Because Israel was now standing in spiritual and moral decay. And Israel was up to her eyeballs in spiritual and moral decay, sin was a luxury they could afford. The sinning against God and the sinning against neighbor. And where do you see the sinning against neighbor? They had now embarked on fake repentance with temple going 
substituting life and heart obedience and repentance. And John the Baptist says to them, do not plead Abraham as a spiritual father. They will give you an automatic passport into heaven. Do not get saved by presumption. Get saved by repentance and the forgiveness of sins that now God offers. And I'm John announcing this to you. And so to the crowds, he says, you've got two tunics. You either wear a tunic because it's cold and you're richer, you've got two tunics. Give one away. Same with food. You've got extra. Share with others. So for Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul. And then love your neighbour as yourself. There was increasingly less and less evidence of the fruit of faith in Israel. Less and less love, less and less care, less and less share. Let me just go down that inverted triangle for you. How do you know you are becoming less loving? Less and less love, less and less caring of others, less and less sharing with others. The mentality of hoarding greed is one indicator. To the crowds, move to generosity and avoid greed. And to the tax collectors, the tax rate you're supposed to collect for Rome is 8%, 10%. But you charge the people 15%. Is that right? Honesty versus deceit. And soldiers, civility, you're here to propagate law and order. You're not here to use your uniform to abuse the people. And in so many countries, you've got to thank God that the anti-corruption index, we are number five as one of the cleanest countries of the world. The only Asian country to make it to the top 10. You realize that? That when you walk up to a counter, you don't have to pay anything. Civility. I watch Men on the Run of 1MDB in Malaysia on Netflix. It's worth watching because some of our elders told me, hey, have you watched that? It's worth watching. Cholo, they still have no idea where this man is. And he, together with Najib, siphoned off at least five to six billion dollars. Five to six billion dollars. And is nowhere to be found. Right? The whistleblower who blew the whistle on him, on 1MDB, at that time was staying in Thailand. Somehow the powerful political connections got from KL to Bangkok, and, and they came to warn him in Bangkok, the whistleblower, and says, if you don't recant on this, this whistleblowing on 1MDB, things are going to happen to your wife. Things are going to happen to your son. That's using the uniform to abuse. This may happen in any society. It shouldn't happen in Israelite society. When the love of God, shown in the love for neighbour, is the fullest display of the fruitfulness of faith. And so repentance, he says to the crowd, you can repent of it right now. You can give that tuning away, you don't have to wait. Repentance is not an extraordinary feat. That has to wait for a tragedy to happen, then I will repent. And repentance is not an ordinary feat, extraordinary feat. They have to go to a prayer mountain or go to a pilgrimage somewhere and then feel so in touch with God and repent. Right now you've got an extra tuning, please give. Right now within ARPC, if someone has just lost a dad or mum, send a card, visit. Someone in a DG group has lost a job, gather around. Love, care, share. That's how we express it. It's now, if you've been slightly dishonest, it's now you can turn 
to being honest in your life. Repentance is not an extraordinary feat, but changing from your ordinary experience of sinfulness. And that's what John the Baptist was offering his generation of Jews at that time. In preparation for Jesus who would come, and when Jesus comes, he would do this. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Because it was the lowliest of tasks to go and wash the feet. Even a servant was not expected to do this. And John is saying, you think I'm great? For people thought he was the Christ. He says, I'm not. I'm not worthy to do the lowest things. But he shows to us the posture of true discipleship. And the posture of true discipleship is always to point to Jesus. And the posture of true discipleship is to kneel often so that Jesus will be exalted. And so he contrasts himself with Jesus. John baptized with water as a sign of repentance. Jesus was baptized with the Spirit of God coming to all who believe in him and the fire to separate true and false worshippers which means the warning to Israel was, you think God is blind to your two-timing? You think He's just going to allow this to carry on in Israel forever? He doesn't know the sheep from the goats? He cannot tell the wheat from the chaff? God can tell. Nothing will go unnoticed and nothing will go unrewarded for the faithful and unpunished for the unfaithful. So, in learning from John, he says, I'm not the Messiah. It's so important in your life that you learn to bow low so that Jesus is exalted. I've told you time and again, right? whenever people come to seek counselling, which is preaching one-to-one, Mona and I will say to them, if it's a couple and the marriage is in need of help, firstly, I want to say to you right, that I can do nothing for you, neither can Mona, because we are not the Messiah. We are here just to open the Word of God and point you to God and point you to Jesus. If you are willing to listen to God and Jesus, there's tremendous hope for you. Amen? Ever so often you have to say that. And can I encourage you? Why don't you always switch it to always say, I'm not the Messiah. Back to marriages and families on the rocks. Right? At times when the marriage is in tension or friction, and a couple cannot agree, and one may say to the other, you know how much I have done for you? You know how much I've done for the children? You know how much I've done for the family? On one hand, it's understandable. There's been a lot of sincere effort to keep this marriage and grow this marriage and family. On the other hand, we've got to listen and follow John the Baptist. I'm not the Messiah. I've done a lot. But this is my God-appointed Lord. If we could only say to ourselves, I'm not the Messiah and not carry that burden, in ministry is so important that none of us steps into the place of God and God now appearing and fulfilling to the person of Jesus. And always ask, is Jesus as he intervenes in my life, is he good news or bad news? Is he good news or bad news? But before I go on, I just want you to take that on board. Maybe what might save you and save your relationship 
and save your marriage and family is you acknowledging I'm not the Messiah. Try that this week, from Monday to Sunday, and give Jesus that due role that He's the Messiah, and things might change in your heart. Is Jesus good news or bad news? To Herod, he's bad news. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for the, all the evil things that Herod had done, to, added to this them all, that he locked up John in prison. They estimate it was perhaps AD 29, right? Around the time Jesus was about 30 years old and began his ministry, that Herod Antipas visited his brother. And as he visited his brother, he met Herodias and introduced to Herodias. And it was a fatal introduction. It was a fatal attraction. Because Herodias was not just his brother's wife, Herodias was also his niece. And so in one go, he was committing incest. But incest had become a nothing to him in the light of his pleasures. I read from this book. During that visit, he fell in love with Herodias, his brother's wife. So Herodias was Antipas' sister-in-law. She was at the same time Antipas' niece. Herodias agreed to marry Antipas when he came back from Rome, provided he divorced his current wife a daughter of the Nabataean king. So Antipas married his sister-in-law, stroke niece. Two marriages were broken up for a marriage contrary to biblical law. Antipas did not think a little incest was a big deal. And John the Baptist dared to rebuke Antipas for the union. And for that, he was thrown into prison. And for that, he was later beheaded. Which tells you that confronting the world with sin is a dangerous calling. Confronting the world with sin may put your life at risk. John was the forerunner of this news. Jesus is the fulfillment of this news. Make straight the path. And this salvation is going to be for all nations. And if you believe and stand up for Jesus, when you go to school and say you stand up for Jesus, you might be bullied. When you stand up for Jesus in JC and Poly and IT, you may be sidelined. When you stand up for Jesus at your workplace, you may be shamed. All the things that come. So John paid the high price and Jesus paid the highest price for this. And so is it good news or bad news? It is good news. There's a way out of sin and death and judgment. It is Jesus, but there's a price to pay from Him, of Him, and for us. And then in the last portion, we come to an unforgettable introduction. Now, when all the people were baptized and Jesus had also been baptized, and was praying, the heavens were open. Notice what was Jesus doing? Luke will contain many incidences of Jesus praying. As He is praying before He begins His public ministry, all three persons of God are there. God the Father speaks, and what He speaks is a combination of two Bible verses. Isaiah 42 verse 1, the suffering servant, and then Psalm 2 verse 7, about the 
Messiah, the victorious Messiah that will make all the nations bow down to Him and hands to God. And He says, You are my beloved Son, with you I'm well pleased. The first introduction to Jesus, this man, through his baptism, he didn't need to be baptized. There was no sin on his part. But he is baptized to identify with his people. So Jesus, whatever it takes to obey God, he will do. Whatever it takes to stand with sinners and stand for sinners, he will do. Get that right. Whatever you do not know about Jesus, whatever it takes for him to obey God and fulfill his will, even though it costs him his life, he will do. Whatever it takes for him to stand with you and stand in your place, he will do. Finally, at the cross. What do you call that? Total commitment. Whatever it takes, you will do. And so I'm told by our prison's ministry that the number one people who visit their sons in prison are usually wives and mothers. The number one people who don't visit generally are fathers. And why psychologically? You're such an embarrassment to me, my son. Such an embarrassment to me. I would do everything not to be associated with you. Even though you, are my, you carry my blood, I would do everything Jesus is the reverse. I will do everything to be identified with you, though I should have nothing to do with you, whatever it takes. And so when we are introduced to that, by faith in Jesus and by the presence of the Spirit, we must have a newfound, full-hearted commitment to Jesus. And then we are introduced to an indispensable family tree. Jesus began his ministry, was about the age of 30. Being the son as he was of Joseph, the son of Heli, and you sit there thinking, Pastor Chris, are you going to read through the whole list? No, I'm very kind. Notice dot, 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 verse 38. Right? The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. I take you right to the end of that list. And I pick it up from Seth. For who was Seth? You want to know, Seth, you've got to read Genesis chapter 4. And in Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 3, the first couple had fallen into sin, which tells you Satan's main way of attacking us is to attack relationships with God and the marriage relationship. The second thing he attacks is the family. You find that Adam and Eve, the first couple, have the first sons, Cain and Abel. And what does Cain do to Abel? Cain kills Abel. Cain belongs to the ungodly line from that point onwards, and the, go the godly line has come to a full stop. It doesn't come to a full stop, because in Genesis 4.25, it says this, Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed Abel. Seth had a son, and he named him Enosh. Can you connect that up? Which tells you that what was written in Genesis all those years ago, that the replacement in this dysfunctional, broken family intruded by Satan, the rescue plan is Seth. And the fulfillment of that rescue plan is Jesus. And Seth 
the son of Adam. And so distinctive things about this family tree is, in Luke's genealogy, he starts with Joseph, the father, the legal father of Jesus. Matthew starts with the spiritual father of Israel. In Luke's gospel, he ends with Adam, son of God. In Matthew's gospel, he ends with Joseph. It's the reverse position and for a purpose. With Luke, he links Jesus to, hey, when I link you to Adam, I link you to the whole of humanity. In other words, the second Adam that we sung about, the second Adam that Deacon Eric prayed about, he's the fulfillment, right? He's the true Adam, and something happens in his life that will undo and reverse the sin of the first Adam. And Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And so this commentator suggests, it's no coincidence, right? He takes you to the end of the genealogy, chapter 3, ends with Adam, and then he introduces to Jesus the second Adam. The first Adam, he disobeyed. And where was he? He was in the bountiful garden of Eden, where everything was created for him and Eve to rule over, to enjoy. And yet he disobeyed God, couldn't trust. The second Adam is led to the wilderness, a barren wilderness, and the wilderness would always be a symbol of pressing the reset button between God and His people. And there, 40 days of unending temptation. Read that with some care. For 40 days being tempted, a barrage of temptations for 40 days. And He was hungry 40 days. How long have you fasted? Let me ask. How long have you ever fasted in your life? I did the World Vision fast for three days. They said to me, in raising money for World Vision, right? this was 1980s, I became a Christian, you can fast, but if you're really too hungry, you feel that you're going to pass out, can drink Milo. So me and my friend in the university said, we're not going to be that weak, man. We can do it. By the time 30 hours came, the Milo looked a bit enticing. By the time 35 hours came, let's make Milo. That's only 40 hours, you know. Jesus was at his weakest. Temptation was his most seductive. And then he says no to Satan. This is a unique temptation because Jesus faces it as the Son of God. This is a unique temptation because the whole human race rests on his obedience to God with each of those temptations thrown at him. This is a unique temptation because as we see from Genesis 4 to its fulfillment here in Luke chapter 4, it's about God coming to stop the spiritual and moral rot called sin in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, where the fiercest spiritual battle take place. And you see it in Jesus doing this. And at all three points, we can only but summarize at this point. He said no. And so he's hungry. And temptation is to turn these stones into bread, and he says no. Men shall not live by bread alone. And then the devil took him up and showed him the kingdoms of this world in a moment of time and said to him, 
To you I give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. What do you read of Satan there? He's a great liar. He's not the ruler of the world. He's been given temporary authority. He's like somebody who is broken into your house, right? And then he sits there inviting all your neighbours, saying, hey, please take, please take. The house doesn't belong to him. The world doesn't belong to him. And he says, please take. If you will then worship me, it will be yours. Finally, it takes him to the highest place. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. And he says, why don't you test your relationship with God and see whether he'll do a spectacular, sensational thing? And Jesus says, no. And when you pull it all together, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So I pull out the main lessons from here. That the faith that you see in Jesus in this unique temptation he chooses to wait for God to provide for him than to meet his own needs. Trouble always comes into your life and my life when you take things into your own hands. Can you remind yourself now and forever, do not take things into your own hands. You know, the temptation of the devil could be summarized like this. You're the son of God. Huh? Are you the son of God? How come God didn't notice you're hungry? I mean, God has not paid attention to you. Give a little bit of attention to yourself. So you're asking to forget God's divine attention. And then it goes on. Right? Faith chooses the worship of God rather than to rule the world. If I gave you the choice, gain the world or worship God by loving Him and fearing God, gain the world. Jesus would say, at the heart of discipleship, what good is it for a man or woman to gain the world but lose his soul? And finally, he quotes Psalm 91. If you're the son of God, may God do this sensational, spectacular thing for you. And Jesus says, it's better to trust God than to test God. My role as the son of God is to trust him, even though it cost me my life to death on the cross. And so it's vitally important that we see this as of first importance to Jesus. Faith chooses to trust God than to test God. In all of these things, please take note that devil and spiritual warfare is a reality. You cannot bypass it. And it's important for us to note before we celebrate the Lord's Supper that it caused Jesus' life to bring back law, order, to save us from the dysfunction that comes from Satan and sin into our hearts, into our marriages, into our families. Sometimes when we believe in God, everything falls into place, like a Rubik's Cube. So how many of you have ever played the Rubik's Cube? Do you know what it is? Is that only our age? <laughs> it's still in, in fashion today, the competition, there's a worldwide competition, and this guy won, won the worldwide competition, Max Park. Then he could solve the Rubik's Cube in 3.13 seconds. Most of us can only pick up the Rubik's Cube in three seconds, <laughs> let alone solve it. I was quite good at this in primary school, but I've totally forgotten. If you now give me a Rubik's Cube, it will take me hours, if not days, to solve it. Because I'm so bad at this, maybe it's old age or whatever, right? At times in your Christian life, everything falls into place. You can see it. 
At times, turn, 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 you cannot see. And like Mary, the mother of Jesus, she treasured all these things in her heart. She heard the announcements from the angels, but she did not know. And John the Baptist comes along and put more pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together. And what does that mean for you and I? In Luke 3 and 4, you see a repeated thing. Sin is a luxury you cannot afford. Jesus is a saviour you cannot afford to not believe in. The two things must go together. And God always sends people to go before him. Angels, John the Baptist, God goes before us to prepare the way of salvation. God is always softening the ground before he softens your heart and speaks into your heart. And so where does that leave us? You know, we did a DG survey, and this is what we found. We found that most of our people, right, who took part who, in ARPC, they live where? The, the red portion. Most of us live in the red portion. Clementi, Jurong, Bukit Bato, Bukit Timah, Holland. And we only did this in hindsight. But God gave us tengah. You think the elders and the deacons and the pastors here 20 years ago said, we know it's tengah. Go and reach as many people from the West to go there. This is the God who goes before us. And the three places given us are Adam, Bishan, Tengah. Right? And this is the most staggering of them all. So our theme for the year, for the whole EP is strengthening faith, strengthening family. We want to encourage you to take God's word seriously, to take Jesus seriously in our hearts, in our marriages and this is what we're going to do. Start the year with an annual conference, marriage enrichment retreats for everyone. We estimated there are 798 couples here in ARPC, close to 800 couples in ARPC. We pray that all 800 couples will attend at least one MER in their life here, for we are serious about this. The next slide that I put on, you saw at the start. If I put on a slide with a QR code for Miss Tamcha, or Hungry Go Where, right now I would see all your phones come up. Can you take your phones out now and take down this QR code on your bulletin? I'm serious. Because by today, this will be opened up to all the 16 Presbyterian churches, and it's first come, first serve. And God has lined up for us from Bishop Solomon to those who are experts in this field to come and guide us in faith and family. We do not want to just preach the gospel, but know that the dysfunction in our lives, the dysfunction in our marriages, the dysfunction in our families is because of the fierce spiritual warfare. And believing in Jesus is the only way to undo it. Amen. There are a lot of young people in our congregations, both at Adam and Bishan. I've been so encouraged by them. In the last two weeks, we had new member services. Did you listen to them? Their testimonies? There's somewhere along the way, they strayed away, but somewhere along the way, the basic leaders and their basic friends kept drawing them to the beauty of God's Word, the beauty of God's Word, the beauty of God's Word, and you now see them infectious about the Word of God and the person of Jesus. I pray to experience this all my life, wherever I go, under God's hand. I arrived at the most recent conference and then prayed with the musicians before I got up to preach. 
And there beside me, before we got started, this Australian lady introduced herself. And she said, you may not remember this, you don't remember me. And I don't. It's been six years, pre-COVID before. She said, the last time you came, I introduced you to a Vietnamese man. And he was searching for God. After your talk, you brought him now out there to the, to the tree. You shared the gospel with him. He gave his life to Christ. I just want to tell you, he's now a missionary. The word of God comes to our youth. The word of God comes to a total stranger. The word of God can only come to people if you and me love the word of God and be vessels of God. May we take this to heart and be so different unto God's glory. This is the introduction that God has given you to do. Introduce people to Jesus. Let's stand and pray together. Sing this song in preparation before we celebrate the communion. Spend a few quiet moments. Thank you for speaking truth to us. Today we learned that some introductions are unforgettable, some introductions are mistaken, and some introductions are tragic. But an introduction to you, Lord Jesus, is the most life-changing and life-giving introduction. As John the Baptist has been sent to announce you, preach with all of his heart that you are the one who will come to baptize with the Spirit and with fire. So we thank you that whatever it costs you, you paid the price. Whatever it took, you never ashamed of us. So may we hear your word, O oh God, and know that you have come, O oh God, and know that you have sent your Son to come into our lives, that we will not carry on with the foolishness and stupidity of thinking that sin is a luxury we can carry on in our lives without any repercussions now and forevermore. Awaken us by your Spirit to know that Jesus is the only one who offers us new life. And to turn to the Lord Jesus. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have come as the second Adam to reverse all the brokenness, all the sadness, all the dysfunction in our hearts, in our homes. And we pray that believing in you will make such a difference to our lives. We ask this, that we who have been introduced to you and know you and love you can be used by you to introduce you to family and friends who so need to hear the good news. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.